As we come together, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day that you have made and that you've called us together as your people. It seems that this peace um, that we pass and that we desire in our lives so much sometimes is so elusive because we look for it in many wrong places. We invite you this morning, we implore you to come and teach us by your Spirit. Lord, open your word that each of us might see Jesus and none other. We pray in his name. Amen. We're going to be in Philippians 2 this morning. I have the task, as Jack says, to speak on not complaining. One of you this morning said, good luck. Um, It is a daunting task um, for us to get a grip on what God says here. Philippians chapter 2 in your Bibles. Let me say also that Jeff and Katie are away for a couple weeks um, seeking rest and recuperation. She's now finished her treatment. Um, She's not felt real great. Um, Jeff told me last night that she is feeling a little bit better each day right now, but continue to pray for them and uplift them as they are away trying to rest a little bit. Philippians 2, beginning with verse 12, hear God's word. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or complaining, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as stars in the universe. I've always secretly wanted to spend some time in a monastery. Now, by time, I mean about a week. (laughs) I did hear a story about a monastery, a silent monastery. Brother Baku um, entered this monastery of silence, and the head friar said to him, Brother Baku, welcome. You're um, able to stay here as long as you would desire, but um, this is a silent monastery, and you cannot speak until I direct you to do so. Five years later, the head friar went to Baku and said, you've been here five years. You may speak two words. And he said, hard bed. (laughs) The head friar said, we'll see what we can do about that. Five years later, he went to Baku again and he said, you have two more words to say. And Baku said, cold food. He said, okay, we'll see what we can do. Well, on the 15th anniversary, um, Baku was allowed two more words, and he was ready this time. He said, I quit. (laughs) And the head friar said, that's just as well. You've done nothing but complain ever since you've been here. Um, Monasteries are interesting, and I see at least two problems with real monasteries. Those of us who are called to be salt and light in a world, those of us who are called to shine as stars in a dark universe, we in essence have escaped from the world when we go to the monastery. And then next in the monasteries, if they have the purpose of getting us out of the world, away from our problems, they have utterly failed. For we take our hearts with us 
And the biggest problem is right here, not out there. Let's consider Philippians 2 this morning. Paul tenderly calls us in verse 12, my beloved, and that is our identity. He calls us that, and that is who we are. In the hospital this past week, I was visiting with a family, and I'd gone to security, I'd put on my name tag, and I got there and I was visiting with them, the whole family was there, and about 10 minutes in, the grandfather said, nobody's going to know who you are. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, your name tag's upside down. And I realized that that's sort of how we deal with our identity in Christ sometimes. We have it upside down in our own thinking. We go through life and we think, as Jack said, I'm not loved. I'm of no value to anyone. Does God really care? And yet Paul and God here calls us my beloved. If you have trouble believing that you are God's beloved, I invite you this morning in the next 30 minutes to ponder two things. The first is the cross of Christ. And the second is the table of our Lord. In this passage, we're exhorted to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We strive. This communicates to us how serious God is about our living lives pleasing to a holy God. We are saved at a point in time as God regenerates our hearts. But our growth in Christ is a process that takes a lifetime. And we are called to obedience as we strive to work out our salvation in fear and in trembling. We are not passive in our growth. We are active participants. And Paul exhorts us here, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For those who are parents, what gives a parent more joy than to have our children obey us? And to hear that our kids are walking in an upright way in obedience and trust, even when we are not present. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and we cannot be passive. We strive to know and to obey God. And the irony is what's in the next verse, verse 13. We rest. For it is in God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We strive and yet we rest in him. We rest in the all-powerful, holy Lord, the one who has begun that good work in us and tells us that he will continue that good work until he comes again. We are utterly dependent upon the Lord, not only in our salvation, but also in our growth in Him. New members will soon join the church, and many of you have taken vows as you have joined the church. One of the vows that will be taken is this. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as is fitting for a follower of Christ? And the most important part of that sentence is in humble reliance upon the grace 
of the Holy Spirit. This is not a promise to try harder and to be better. It is a recognition of our absolute need to depend on the grace of the Lord. Do you ever think, maybe God is just finished with me? Maybe he doesn't really care. Maybe he's even abandoned me. Beloved friends, you are drawing breath right now because he continues to work in you. And his promise is to never leave you nor forsake you. And we can do it. We can work out our salvation for it is God who is working in us to do that. Without God working in us, we could not work out our salvation any more than those lights could shine without the energy source connected to them. God causes the Philippians and us to work out our salvation. We strive and we rest for His good pleasure. One very concrete way that we do that, that we work out our salvation and give Him great delight and pleasure is found in verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. The reason Paul says this is because complaining is such a big problem. It was then and it is now. This morning, we're going to answer a number of questions as we keep going here. First, what is complaining and what is not complaining? First, complaining is that incessant whining, the constant criticism that we can so easily fall into. It's the nagging, the griping, the belly aching, the venting, the grumbling. Now, somebody came by right before I started preaching and said, we're probably going to do a lot of elbows today. And I hope you don't. I hope you elbow yourself. For I am the one who needs it. Our hearts are so quick to go to complaining. Some of us have complained about one thing after another, even this morning. Some have already complained about the sermon. And I would be, if I were sitting there, I would be. Because you know what? I sort of think that I don't want anybody telling me I shouldn't complain. It's sort of my right to do that. Now, I'll tell you this too. I didn't want to be preaching on this. Um, And I I don't know why I did it. Um, But I've complained to God a good bit about it this week. I actually think I am the reason. I complain too much as I go throughout life. Um, You know, sometimes I sort of think, well, I don't complain that much. And then this week hit. And if we were to tell each other about our weeks, man, we would sure want to complain a good bit. In fact, um, let me just tell you about my evening last night. I came up here about six o'clock just to get my head on straight for today. And um, about three or four days ago, I started experiencing this pain in my right knee. And finally, I went to the doctor, and he said, it's patella tendonitis. Well, I don't know what it is, but I just know it hurts. And it hurts really, really badly. And so I'm up here, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. So I called the doctor. He told me to. And he said, I should have given you that stronger stuff to begin with. 
And so now I'm on anti-inflammatory and hydrocodone, so if I, I'm not responsible for what I say up here this morning. Um, you know, so he, he orders this prescription for me, and I say, I'll go get it in a little while. And then I get a phone call from the daughter of a friend who says, um, listen, my dad can't teach Sunday school tomorrow. I said, gosh, I am so sorry. What's up? Well, he's in the hospital. And this is a friend of mine. And so I said, gosh, I've got to get somebody to teach Sunday school. And, and God supplied that, thanks to Tim Bertram and Renee. Um, but I'm sitting there, and five minutes later, my phone rings, and it's Rita. And Rita says, I've got bad news. And I says, well, I know about the hospital and the Sunday school class. And she says, oh, no, it's not that. Your garage is flooding. And so I said, okay, I'll be home shortly. And it was uh, a pipe that gets clogged up that um, Jonathan and I worked for a while to get it unclogged last night. But that's just sort of the night I had. And you know what? You really want to complain, and yet you're preaching the next day on not complaining. Um, Someone said to me this week, you know, you really don't complain that much, and this person does not know me very well. And um, I said, you know, I don't verbally necessarily complain all that much, but, um, and I didn't say this part, I said, the reason... I don't complain is that I'm a middle child people pleaser. I'm, a, I'm a, a peacemaker. I want everybody to just get along, and I want them to think nicely of me so I don't complain. And that's another heart problem that I'll have to address some other time, um, I'm sure. But I start hearing myself, and not always the spoken words. You know, you can complain without speaking. You can complain with your eyes. And with your look. And if you don't believe me, just ask my family because they say I've got a look. And, and I try my best not to wear that look, but sometimes it's there. Somebody may be saying, you know, I really don't want to complain. But I am in such painful circumstances that I don't know what to do. Let me address this Um, very clearly. There is a place for a serious dialogue with God to struggle and to tell Him your doubts and your fears and all of your struggles. There is a whole set of psalms that are called laments, and they are not complaining. In these psalms, we hear strong, emotional words of people who are suffering. And these are words written by real people in very difficult circumstances. These are godly sufferers. And they cry out, oh God, help me. They say things like, I'm hurting. The enemy is winning. It seems like the wicked are indeed the ones who prosper. This is not complaining. This is deep pain and hurt that is being experienced and dialogued with God. These psalm writers come back and they always end up saying, I still trust in you. Hear me. Save me. God does not expect us to remain stoic and unexpressive through our suffering. We can pour out our deepest hearts and souls 
to the Lord. In fact, some of us here have been through such painful life events that we better be crying out to the Lord from the depths of our beings. We must not deny our pain or our hurt. We must tell the truth about our feelings and deal with those tough issues in our lives. The biblical writers are honest with God about their struggles. But that's not the type of complaining that I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about that constant criticism that comes when our boats get tossed a little bit by the ripples of life. Sort of like mine last night. You know, nothing was earth-shattering. Everything has happened that needs to happen. God is still in control. Well, next question. Is complaining really all that bad? Now, we live in a world that's full of complaining, and we know that. It seems like we can complain about just about everything, the weather, our work, how people look, long lines, traffic, gas prices. We complain about our homes and how they're not good enough, our cars. We complain about our clothes, and it seems like they have shrunk again. We complain about our kids' schools and our teachers, and our teachers complain about us as parents. We complain about the things dearest to us. We complain about our kids, and we hurt them when we do. And we complain about our parents, and we hurt them when we do. We can go to a closet full of clothes and complain that I have nothing to wear. We can go to a refrigerator full of food and complain that there's just nothing to eat. We can complain that there's nothing to do, and we can complain that we're too busy. We are an interesting people, I tell you that. What does complaining do to us and other people? Let me answer that by saying there's another word for complaining. It's a Yiddish word. Some of you know this word because you've lived in the Northeast. Some of you were here a number of years ago when I preached a sermon using this word. It's kvetching. It's a great word. I didn't know it when I first heard it, and I really loved it. It sounded so expressive, just about nasty even. And yet, what kvetching means is griping, complaining, and grumbling continually and incessantly. Literally, it means to squeeze or to pinch, which is exactly what it does to us and to others. It really imprisons us. It binds us and others. Complaining puts us in bondage. Well, what does it do to us? We lose focus of what we should be focusing on. We get a bad attitude usually when we're complaining. We lead others to slip into the same thing. We destroy unity. We think more highly of ourselves than we should. And that's the whole point of this passage coming right after the passage in chapter 2 in which Christ is described. And we're told not to think too highly of ourselves. When we complain... It's probably true that others really don't care that much about being around us. If we could get a glimpse of the effect that our complaining has upon us and others, we would complain at least a lot less. We would complain no more even sometimes. The story is told out west of a modern-day cowboy who was driving down a dirt road. And his dog was riding in the back of his truck. His favorite horse was in a trailer behind his pickup truck. And he had a terrible accident 
went off the road. All of them received lacerations and, and broken bones. Sometime later, a highway patrolman comes along the scene, and he is an absolute animal lover. But he discovers this horse lying there, and it's clear um, from the injuries the horse has that he cannot survive. So this officer pulls out his revolver, and he shoots the horse. And then he finds the dog, and it's clear that this dog cannot survive. And he, he hated to do it, but he pulled out that revolver again, and he shot the dog and put the dog out of its misery. I'm not going to talk about my dog now, so um, I am trying to give one away if anybody would like one. Um, <clears throat> but then the police officer comes to this old cowboy lying there in the weeds. He has a couple broken bones, and he says, Are you okay? And the cowboy looks at that smoking pistol, and he says, Never been better. Because he was afraid of what might happen if he told him how bad he was. Might we see the negative effect of our complaining that it squeezes and pinches us and others? It puts us in bondage. Our complaining does not build the kingdom of God. Complaining does not lead the complainer or anyone else to godly thoughts. It does not lead a watching world to a Savior. Well, why do we complain so much? Simply put, we complain because we're focusing in the wrong place. Our hearts get so bent out of shape because we think that we deserve so much more. We too often are focused upon ourselves. And Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that we must focus elsewhere. Paul had just told the Philippians and us not to look out merely for our own interests, but we focus on self. We live in a culture that tells us to focus on ourselves. Because I have this heart problem, I really think deep down that I am the most important person there is. And I am convinced that I deserve more. The bottom line, we complain because we focus on ourselves. Well, how long has complaining been a problem? Jack mentioned that this morning. Since the beginning, really since the fall. Wasn't that the essence of the first sin, a complaint? In the Old Testament, we see a good bit of complaining. The Israelites complained of the manna which God provided for them to eat. They even wanted to go back to Egypt, to captivities. Others complained that Moses was the one who was elevated to be the leader. In Numbers 14, we read, All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in the desert. Then in Exodus 6, So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Have we ever considered that our complaining, even about the mundane things of life, might truly be a complaint against the Lord. Numbers 11. Now the people complained about their hardship and the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. We easily make light of our grumbling and complaining, but it's very clear that God 
did not take grumbling lightly. In the New Testament, complaining continues. Martha complained that Mary was not helping her, and Mary was worshiping Jesus. The religious leaders complained about Jesus all the time, and even the disciples complained at times. 1 Peter 4, the early church must have complained some about the hospitality of traveling brothers and sisters, extending that hospitality to them, where it says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then James 5, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. And then in our passage this morning, Philippians 2, do everything without grumbling or complaining. Grumbling has been around for a long time, yet there is an alternative. What is the alternative to complaining? We do have other options. We, as the beloved children of God, are to live lives of trust and thankfulness and joy. What God tells us to do, He certainly supplies the strength for us to do. In fact, we know that this is a viable alternative because Paul writes these words from prison to the Philippians. He's in jail. He's not on some beautiful Mediterranean beach writing these words. He is in jail. And he says that he's learned the secret of abundance and of poverty. And he calls us all to rejoice in the Lord. We have to get perspective. One old proverb says this, I complained that I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. Now, we can get a measure of perspective from looking at others, but ultimately, we have to look at the Lord and see His blessing in our lives. This morning, just for a minute, let's turn our our minds and our hearts to consider all it is that we have to be thankful for. We have so much. We have life today. We have shelter and food and clothing. We have the Lord with us. We have each other. We could go on and on. We have been made citizens of His kingdom. Um, Scripture tells us in the Psalms that if we were to count our blessings, they would far outnumber the sand on the seashore. And that's a lot of blessing. Actually, next week I will be dealing with gratitude and we'll talk more about this then. But there is an alternative to complaining. This leads us to our last question. How do we change? Let me say this. There are no formulas, but there is one answer. We grumble because we think that if the thing we are complaining about would just change, then we would be satisfied. But it does not satisfy because there is only one thing that does, and that is the Lord Jesus. We gather together weekly for one purpose, to look to Jesus. We have this huge heart problem, and only the great physician can heal it as we hear his heartbeat. When we consider what he has done for us, everything else seems to pale in significance. Jesus has loved us while we were yet sinners. Jesus has come and he's purchased 
our salvation on this cross. Jesus gives us eternal life. Jesus satisfies our thirst with living water and our hunger with the bread of life. Jesus gives light to our dark past. Jesus takes what was dead, us, in our trespasses and sin, and he makes us alive. Jesus intercedes for us with the Father. Jesus is our high priest. And we could go on and on and on. And what more could we want? We have looked at so many nooks and crannies for joy and peace and contentment. And it is only found in Jesus. A good look at the cross will change everything. Jesus is so much more beautiful and fulfilling and satisfying than all the things we seek. We try out popularity and wealth and stuff, but there is only one thing. We must focus on Jesus. As we wrap up, our identity is found in the cross. Our identity is there. We need to turn the name tag upright so that we can get it right. We are called my beloved in this passage. We are called children of God. And our challenge this morning is to truly embrace who we are in Christ. The beloved children of God are called to shine as stars in the universe amidst a crooked and perverse generation. Paul ties our doing all things without grumbling and complaining with our shining as stars in the universe amidst that crooked and perverse generation. Just as stars shine in the darkness and dispel that darkness, so we as God's children, the beloved, are to shine and we are to banish spiritual and moral darkness. And that implies that we go into the world. Not that we escape the world in some monastery. Jesus says that we are the light of the world. And this shining is not just a light that is seen, but it's a luminary that points the way for people to find the true way. As the light of the world, our actions, our lives of praise and gratitude are constantly proclaiming our maker and our redeemer to a world that is dark and in such great need. Jesus says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. Jesus is the true and eternal light of the world. And he tells us to walk in light. It is all a matter of the heart. There's only one thing that changes our hearts, and that's a look at Jesus. This morning, where is your heart? As the worship team comes forward and as the elders and Reverend Doug Fleming come forward to prepare the table, let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to so work in our hearts that we truly believe we are your beloved children in the depths of our being. Help us experience the truth that a good look at the cross 
and our Savior will indeed change everything. Feed us today in this meal, for we are hungry and needy, even if we do not know it. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.